Today's episode is brought to you by Get Your Guide. Want to make your next trip unforgettable? There's an easy way to do that. Book a Get Your Guide travel experience. Whether you're into food, nature, culture, sports, immerse yourself in the things that you love on your next vacation. For example, you could check out the Sherlock Holmes tour in London. You could take a pasta making class in Rome, experience the San Diego whale and dolphin watching cruise, or go whitewater rafting in the Grand Canyon. They've got a night helicopter flight over Las Vegas, a New York City street art and graffiti tour. They've even got a Chicago river cruise and architecture tour. Uh, I have to stress that my family went on one of these uh, architecture boat tours of Chicago, and it's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, So, I mean, this is the kind of thing that you want to turn to get your guide for. Whatever you're into, you'll find an experience you love. Discover and book your next unforgettable travel experience at GetYourGuide.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell Tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop, powered by an Intel Core i9 processor, featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Your dream setup, amazing prices, and free shipping await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music and lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, this is Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Uh, Julie, there is a a book I read a little while back, and it's uh, referenced in the title to this podcast, um, The Werewolf Principle by uh, Clifford D. Simic. And uh, I found it really interesting. It's not, uh, perhaps not Simic's best work, uh, and he's probably best known for uh, a a book called City, which won a a Hugo Award. Mm Mm-hmm. But uh, it's kind of like uh, they came up to, to, to Clifford, uh, you know, a really established uh, sci-fi dude, and they said, hey, we want you to write um, a, a novel about werewolves from space. And then he set out and, like, wrote the most intelligent, interesting uh, take on that concept possible. Of course. Instead of it just being werewolves landing and running around howling at things. Um, it involved a guy. Calling that, it the moon. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, which gets into the the interesting argument uh, that I've always wondered. It's like, what if you, what would happen if a werewolf landed on the moon? Would they be a were a wolf all the time? Would they be affected by what the Earth was doing? Would they be howling all the time? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. But uh, 
But but Cl- Clifford uh, Simic's uh, whole take was that he decided to make this a person who had been engineered uh, to adapt to different environments and sent off into space. So he goes to if he were to land on Mars, his body would rapidly uh, change so that he could you know live on Mars, right? Uh, Etc. And anyway, he's returned to Earth and he's he keeps changing into these previous forms, uh, and that's the the base. There's also st- Something really like uh, like humans live in houses that can fly around, and there um, and there are brownies like little um, creatures that live in the woods. So is isn't he like two hundred years old or something by the time he returns? Yeah, yeah, I believe so. This yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. So he's got a he's got a lot of living. Yeah, but it's uh, it's such it's a informing. A, <laughs> but at, at heart, it's such a fascinating concept because yeah. uh, we we're, we still talk about terraforming a lot. We talk about. I mean, the, the, one of the basic models of space flight is let's take a little bubble of our environment and let's uh, blast it up into into orbit, uh, because we are ultimately we're creatures that can that are that have evolved to live uh, only in a very uh, small region of our own atmosphere, right. just a small portion of uh, of the Earth's crust, because the, the crust also, uh, and, and some definitions includes the uh, the atmosphere. So so we're only. Uh, really supposed to live in this one little section, but we keep pushing the boundaries. You know, we want to climb Mount Everest. We want to to, to live in space, and then we want to uh, have our little environment when we're in orbit. We want to turn uh, Mars into Arizona, uh, you right? Know, and, uh, and and all, and 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 you, you see these fantastic science fiction visions um, where we've gone out and done that to all these different worlds, where we we just find you know exoplanet after exoplanet. Change it into into Florida. Change it into uh, you know Vacationville. Right, right. Um, we're looking at you, Richard Branson. Yeah. <laughs> but and then you think, okay, well, I mean, fish—they're not doing this. They're not saying, "Wow, I wish I could live on land." Right. I didn't have these gills. Right. You know, how do I come up with some sort of lung situation here? Right. They yeah. They ended up uh, evolving, adapting over time, and uh, and reaching the point where they uh, where something could not return to the water. Right. Uh, and and so you you run into this interesting argument of what should we be doing to evolve to our setting as and, as opposed to uh, changing our setting to uh, to to uh, adhere to our demands right and of course the astronaut is like the the perfect specimen to look at this whole argument with right right yeah yeah it's kind of because they're not very ideal in terms of of trying to actually explore space right. And, Nothing uh, against them. Yeah. Just our humanness getting well, in the way. Well, that's actually a good place to start. Like, what is the ideal astronaut, given what we currently know about, uh, you know, about about sending people into orbit? Yeah. Um, one of the more interesting things is that you want somebody with ideal methane output. Of course. Yeah. And, of course, for – I think we all know what I'm talking I'm talking about farts, of course, in, right. in space. And when you say ideal, I think you mean minimum. Minimum. Um, minimal. Yeah, because first of all, the methane is, uh, it's flammable. So you don't want, you have a closed environment. You don't want like a lot of gas going off in there and potentially catching on fire while guys are carrying off, uh, uh, you know, experiments. Right. Uh, et cetera. Plus it's that whole psychological thing. If you're going to be stuck in a, a spacecraft for six months, you don't necessarily want to be gassing people out, right? Right, right. There's a, a guy by the name of Edwin Murphy and he did some, uh, he conducted some research on this, uh, and uh, it, this is this is really interesting. It was uh, it was uh, there's a whole chapter dealing with uh, with this topic in Mary Roach's um, uh, latest book um, uh, about Mars and uh, the space the space program. So Murphy used an experimental bean meal and he fed it to volunteers who had been rigged to a rectal catheter uh, to uh, and, and and to to measure how much gas was going out. Uh, and he was he was interested, you know, in the individual differences, uh, not just the the overall volume, 
uh, but in you know the percentage of of methane right in the gas in, in the the fl- the flattest uh, I believe is the the, the actual, flattest yeah, yes. technical term for it uh, because you, if you're writing a scientific t- you know um, um, discussion on something you don't want to just c- c- you know keep saying the farts over right and over again fart doesn't cut it yeah insert cheese joke here yeah yeah <laughs> uh, so um, uh, but w- what he found w- was really interesting uh, he, he found out that uh, about half the population doesn't produce methane. Uh, in their, um, I thought that was incredible because it was something about like their their bacterial yeah. flora. Yeah, it's and it's great and it, it's important to note that methane itself is like a it, it, it's not it, it, methane doesn't stink. Okay, right. There are other things that work in one's digestion besides methane production. Um, so it's not something where you can where where these people are not creating uh, or. Uh, or, you know, emanating or expressing, expressing flattus. Uh, though he did, uh, apparently claim that one, he found one individual who was quote flattus free, which just sounds, um, I just, I don't, I didn't even think that was possible. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, you could put that on your resume. Yeah. I mean, people would, or would they hate you? I don't know. I would kind of, <laughs> I would feel like, like if someone, if I was in a position to hire somebody and they'd be like, Oh, by the way, I'm Vladis free. I'd be like, well, I'm not hiring you, jerk. You're going to sit around and just make us look bad. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. right. Yeah, we could never blame anything on you. No, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just can't. It, it, it would happen and like the dude would just sit there all smug like and just it, w- it would be horrible. Yeah. <laughs> but you could always be an astronaut. Yes. Yeah. Being an astronaut would be great yeah. uh, because because there wouldn't be any concern with methane at all. Um so Murphy's whole argument was, hey, NASA, you need to focus on getting astronauts who have the proper um, uh, uh, flattest output for space. You, right. want, you want people that are that are producing the less hostile flattest. And only those people. Right. Everybody else, you're, you're out of the pool. Yeah. And yeah. then NASA was like, no, we're just going to not serve beans. That's right. going to be our No cabbage, answer. no yeah. broccoli. I think we're going to get the, the, go the easier route. Yeah. <laughs> and, and actually, this guy, too... Um, if I understand this correctly from Mary Rich's book, he was like a flattest researcher. Like he was employed as a flattest researcher, yes. researcher and only a flattest researcher. This was his life work. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you can, <laughs> you can imagine why he took it so seriously. And, and, uh, didn't he even, uh, insert the re- rectal catheter? Yes. Yeah, she actually talked about that, the rectal catheter. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, uh, we're, we're laughing, but it's, uh, you know, it, it's an, imp- it's an important uh, area of study if you're talking about sending guys up and gals up into space in this yeah. little uh, tiny environment. Uh, but it's but this is also, it's also like one of the first like real mo- you know moments like which way are we going to go? Are we going to going to going to change our environment? Or are we going to change us? And this was a chance to not really change us, but to you know selectively choose. Right. Uh, and, and I mean, granted, there. There are, you know, minimal uh, requirements for for astronauts and and, uh, and members of any you know space program. Stuff like, uh, um, you know, uh, you know, eyesight, blood pressure, height. Um, you know, obviously they they tend to go f- for people who have at least a bachelor's degree in some sort of science or right or engineering or math, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. So. And and you have to have kind of a happy-go-lucky disposition, right? right? Yeah, and even like space tourism, most of the uh, models we're looking at, even the ones like uh, you know, even like uh, the Branson's whole uh, whole space tourism de- tourism deal, as as much as they're going to try and cater that to to, to make m- make it available to everybody, uh, the certain people are just not going to be eligible to go into space, right? So uh, people who have a fear of flying, right? <laughs> I think are going to be cut off the list. Yeah, but but this first. was a, a case where where NASA could. Could either have have uh, have said yes, we're going to go after the people who who have minimal uh, flatus, uh, you know, and are mm-hmm. methane producers, um, and they said no, we're going to change the the meal plan. 
So, uh. It's so practical. <laughs> so, so other areas, uh, that, uh, that Mary Roach brings up, um, bone mass, of course, is a big deal. You're going to lose bone mass if, uh, the more you're in a, in a, in a, um, microgravity environment. Yeah. And actually that, I mean, it's the, uh, stat that I saw on that was astronauts lose one to two percent of their bone mass for each month they spend in space. Right. That's, that's quite a bit. Yeah. And, uh, and, the, and, but, but the interesting thing is that, uh, black women, for instance, are seven to 24 percent denser. Uh, in their bones than, uh, than, than white or Asian women. Okay. And, uh, of course, Mary didn't have the, um, have the, the, the data for men, just for the women. And I assume that's tied to osteoporosis, uh, research. Uh, but, but conceivably, um, uh, black men would also have better bone density than white or Asian men. Right. So, uh, so it ends up creating an, an interesting argument there. Should we only be using, um, uh, minimal flatus, uh, black astronauts? Uh, you know why not? Why not? Yeah, if yeah. they're, they're going to be more suited for space, uh, and and uh, you can take this even one step uh, farther, and that is that maybe they should all be deaf, because because um, you know if anybody's ever had motion sickness, be it on a boat, in the car, uh, etc. You know, it's you get kind of nauseous. Next thing you know, you're throwing up into the into the floorboard of the vehicle. Right, and it's an inner ear thing. I, right, I think yeah. People used to think it was tied to the stomach, but it's not. Yeah, it's tied to inner ear. And, uh, and, and uh, many people argue that it's kind of a mistake of evolution because vomiting, as, as much as we may hate it, uh, does serve a number of really key functions. You know, you eat something and it's bad, it's poisonous, you barf it up. Right. Start over. Um, uh, and, and actually animals that don't vomit, I mean, that becomes a problem because it's, they eat something they shouldn't eat. I believe horses are like this. Uh, they eat something they shouldn't eat, they can't vomit it up. It's, it's, you know, there's more of a, uh, it becomes a real, you know, problem when it yeah, comes to poison control. Yeah, it's a huge control. amount of discomfort. Right. Yeah. Because, like with kids, right? If a kid eats something they're not supposed to, uh, a child, not a goat. Uh, if a child eats something that uh, uh, he or she is not supposed to, you can always there's the vomiting, right? You can give right. them epicac or something, right? Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking about this too. Like this is sort of an accident of nature, right? Because whatever controls our vomiting response uh, is near our inner ear mm-hmm. function or something yeah. along this. I'm sorry, I don't have the correct terminology, but I sort of scan that remembering. Oh, okay, so that's yeah. why we sometimes it, vomit because we're it, yeah. But it serves sort of no evolutionary prop, prop. You know, there's no reason for it. It's like, oh, right. I'm feeling kind of motion sickness, and my body's like, we have to vomit now. Yeah, you know, there's confusion, no argu- confusion. Yeah, it serves no like evolutionary advantage. Yeah. Um, so, uh, the only way to act completely get rid of, uh, motion sickness is, um, is for the human to have a non-functioning inner ear. And, uh, so you would, would conceive, would then go for deaf people. So, all black deaf astronaut crew with, uh, minimal flatus. All right. I mean, it yeah. could happen. I guess the problem is, is that you just keep narrowing the pool. To the point where it's probably harder and harder to get astronauts, right? Unless you create, and this is, I'm throwing this out there as like a future kind of thing, and, and, and kind of a potentially scary eugenics kind of thing, but like you, then you create a breeding program, right? Just for astronauts, you know, okay. just to encourage the traits. I mean, we do it, we've done it with dogs, and of course that has some horrible effects, uh, in many times, but conceivably, seems to me, you could, you could have a breeding program Similar to the, you know, like something out of Dune, where you're just breeding for ideal astronauts. And you, and so it's like a genetic, uh, you know, hereditary thing. You create a, an entire cast or subspecies of astronauts. I know. And I, I, I'm just thinking now of like the Island of Misfits and uh, Rudolph <laughs> Red-Nosed Reindeer and the elf that wanted to be a dentist. Like there might be that person that's bred to, you know, do this and goes, you know, and I just, don't I don't space. really yeah. want to go to space. But thanks. Yeah. Yeah. 
But then, then you have to sit down with them and be like, like, but dude, listen, listen, like you, or don't listen, like read the words <laughs> that I'm writing because you're deaf because we bred for that. Right. Uh, you know, it's like you're, you're deaf. You, your bone density is incredible. You're, you have no methane when you, when you, when you break wind. Like this is, this is for you. But they're like, no, I, I really, really want to be an artist. So what do you do? Yeah. Right. This presentation is brought to you by Intel, sponsors of tomorrow. So, so there's that, that viewpoint. Like what have we, so, you know, step one, we, we only choose the people that are ideal for space. And then, okay, we could take that a step farther. What if we, we bred people for space? Uh, but then, then the next step is what if we engineered people for space? What if we made them, um, adapt or made them better? We adapted them for uh, space. Into the cyborg. Yes. Yeah. Um, and like a simple version of it would be like if you just made people deaf before you send them into space, which is kind of horrifying. Right. But, uh, I'm, but yeah. I'm not sure a lot of people go for that. Yeah. They might. I don't know. But there are a number of uh, interesting changes that could that could take place that would be uh, uh, less scary, though some of them are pretty scary. Um, so let's look at the cyborg. Okay. Uh, now, the, this is a term that is pretty loaded these days because when, when, when I say cyborg, what do you think of? Well, I think of the Terminator, but right. I don't think he's technically... A yeah, he was more of a robot covered with with he, flesh. With flesh, yeah. Um, Darth Vader. Yeah, I think Darth Vader was pretty cybernetic uh, in, in his state. Um, Robocop, perhaps a cyborg. Okay. I'm 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 kind of foggy on the explanations in the the first two movies, but uh, but yeah, you get this idea. It's like a human being that has been augmented terrifically uh, or terrifyingly with machines. Six million dollar man. Six million dollar man is a, is a prime example okay. of a cyborg. Yeah. Uh, but, but again, this is kind of a, a term that's been taken by, by science fiction and, and just sort of they run wild with it. So now you just think of like man with half metal face. Right. Kind of thing. The term actually originates, uh, back in, uh, 1960, September of 1960 in, uh, uh, an edition of Astronautics. And this was an article by Man, Manfred E. Kleins and Nathan S. Klein, uh, one with a C, the second with a K. And it was titled Cyborgs in Space. And it's a great read. I'll have to throw up a link to it on the um, the accompanying blog post when this podcast comes out. Um, but they uh, they made they just made he made they make the huge argument that uh, uh, like here's just a quote from it that really sums it up. In the past, evolution brought about the altering of bodily functions to suit different environments. Starting as of now, it will be possible to achieve this to some degree without alteration of heredity by suitable biochemical physiological and electronic modifications of man's existing uh, bodies. So, And so what I thought was kind of cool about this, too, is that it, it's not necessarily that, that they felt like they were changing humans, but that they were improving humans so that they could explore more and they could have more independence to, to create more and to think more right. if, they, if they weren't um, burdened by their own physicality. Right. And, and you... And plenty of people make the argument that the cyborg has been around for ages. Right. Like the second that we skinned an animal and started wearing its fur, cyborg. Second, with the second we strapped a wristwatch to our to our arm, cyborg. Dentures. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. How are you going to chew? You you know you throw the dentures in. You've augmented the uh, the individual with technology to better enable them for their environment. You've become something more than human. Right. And uh, and certainly we went into a number of uh, of, of these possibilities on the previous. Uh, um, 
uh, accessorizing podcast about right. uh, you know you, somebody can wear flippers they're gonna they're gonna swim faster um, you know we, we wearable computers uh, our you know our our iPhones it's like there's there's so much technology eyeglasses contacts um, Lasix these are all examples of of something where technology changes the person to better suit them for their environment mm-hmm. you may think of it as just your everyday life but your everyday life is here on earth but what if the everyday life was in space so clients and Klein took that and then they they looked at all the problems facing us in, in trying to exist in space or explore space and I thought that the um, solutions they came up with were incredible I mean they're they're yes. really creative and they're really interesting ways to to approach the problem yes. And I have to tell you though, to like reading this, I thought, God, this is, this is so crazy. Like this is the Mad Men era. Can you imagine them like sitting <laughs> in a cocktail party saying, well, I've got an idea about this whole problem of the lungs in space. Yeah. Yeah. And, or I mean, it, it reminds me a little bit, uh, in Mary Roach's book, she talks about like when you would have scientists, uh, so, the scientists that designed, uh, space travel and the jock astronauts that would do it. Yeah. Like sitting in the same room. And the, um, and, and she pointed out how that the scientists would be like, you know, we could develop a way for the, for them to actually eat parts of the ship on the return trip from Mars. And maybe there's a way we can make it to where they can eat, um, eat poo or something. You know, it's like they were actually beginning to think along those lines. And the, the, the astronauts were like, no, 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 we're, we're not doing that. That's, right. Be, because it's something about like the scientific mindset when you really get into it from a, just a, a pure, purely logical problem solving, uh, you know, uh, frame of mind. Right. So, so there's a hint of that, well, more than a hint of that in this, uh, in, in their original article, because it's some of the, the possibilities are a little, uh, uh, you know, they, they make you shake your head a little, but, uh, but, but they're, but, but the logic of it is, is, is interesting. And, right. And it's so sound. inventive. Yeah. For instance, they pointed out that we could have, uh, osmotic pressure pump capsules, uh, and sensing, uh, and controlling mechanisms in our bodies, like right. implanted to, uh, give us, uh, medications for blood pressure, to give us basically speed if we need to, to, to stay awake. Um, which, you know, they, they have various medications, uh, on space, uh, on any kind of a, a, a space mission, uh, these days, but you generally have to pop the pills yourself. Right. But what if it was an automatic thing? And that's one of the, the huge key, um, you know, aspects of, uh, of what was basically Cyborg One. Um, as outlined in this uh, proposal, and that was that we were taking these different things and turning them over to subconscious functions. So, so we're automating these, right? Yeah. So it wouldn't be like like, oh, I'm getting a little sleepy, and I've got a, a high pressure job ahead of me. I better, uh, you know, pop some of this uh, this NASA speed. Uh, no, you would just it would just kick in. Um, so all these sensors. Uh, that are taking the data and recalibrating your body based right. on that. Yeah, and, and other things, too, in this uh, situation would be like anti-radiation uh, uh, medications, uh, pituitary drugs to help induce hibernation. That was a, a, a big key, too, because yeah. you get into the issue of how are you going to you know, worry about sending people on long space voyages where you know, they're going to be uh, they're going to be setting around doing nothing for you know, years. What if you could... You, we could learn something from bears. Uh, well, bears don't technically hibernate, if I remember correctly. It's a different. Well, I think that they are interested in bears. It's, it's uh, something that when they hibernate, they're actually redistributing the calcium back to their bones. Right. Or something nuts yeah. like that, That which they thought, well, if we could just replicate that in humans, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah, because bears are sitting around doing nothing for uh, for the period of their uh, of, of their their winter nap time, right. but they're not uh, they're not losing uh, bone and their uh, bone density uh, right. and their their muscles. They can still walk at the end of it. Right. If a human laid in bed for uh, 
uh, X number of months, uh, he or she would not necessarily be able to move when right. they got it, when they woke up. And the crux of the problem too is that, yeah, you can, you, you might have muscle atrophy, atrophy, but you can get your muscles back afterward, right? Mm-hmm. And you'll have some bone loss, but you may not be able to recoup actually all of the, the bone density that you lost. Right. And particularly, um, the area in your hips. So if you're an astronaut and you reach retirement age, then it's not a great scenario for you because that's like the number one thing that happens to people in yeah. their older years is that they fall and break their hips. So it's actually like a real problem for yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, here are a few other things from the uh, the cyborg paper. Uh, they suggested replacing the lung with an inverse fuel cell, um, <laughs> uh, altering your um, intestinal plumbing so that uh, I love this yeah, one. wastewater goes through a filter and right back into your blood. <laughs> which, yeah. which this is one of those where you, you can just imagine it coming up in, a, in the Mad Men era where it's like, you know, we're wasting a lot of water when we go to the bathroom. I think we can we can probably pump that through a filter right back into the bloodstream. Yes, <laughs> yes. And to your point, too, about uh, redistributing the, the poo, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, there's a quote from the paper that says, sterilization of the gastrointestinal tract plus intravenous or direct intragastric feeding could reduce fecal elimination to a minimum, and even this might be reutilized. So, yes, yeah. to your point, they're absolutely thinking about this, eating your own well, defecation. Well, it, well, that's kind of the, you're putting the dark spin on it. Do it, do it put yeah, the no. light spin on it, minimizing, and hey, you know, I'm a dreamer, one day eliminating uh, pooping. Just completely get rid Altogether. of it. Yeah. Wow. What a world we would live in. Huh. Um, so, so, I mean, that would most assuredly be the death knell for the newspaper industry right there. <laughs> um, the, um, uh, of course, the, the, the whole idea of like, uh, of recycling, uh, like urine. Of course, we're already doing that, uh, in space. Right. We, we have, uh, water filtration systems and, uh, and, and, and of course, everybody has the, the idea of the, the still suit from, uh, from the Dune novels. You know, the idea that you could pee in the suit and it would turn back into water. So, right. um, so some of the ideas are like, I, I would not be opposed to wearing a still suit to, you know, or, or to, or if someone said, Hey, this, this water was pee an hour ago, I'd be like, well, you know, a lot of water was pee at some point. So it's no right. big deal. But the whole idea of like, we're now going to re, re- reroute your uh, intestinal system so that uh, the wastewater goes back into your bloodstream. That's a little more extreme. Right. But it's an interesting solution. Um, let's see a few other ones here. Uh, enzyme tinkering to create uh, uh, anaerobic organisms. Uh, in other words, astronauts that don't require air or can live in different atmospheres. So that's some extreme makeover right there. Yeah, and for, for those types of uh, solutions, I can't help but think like, how do you recircuit the the autonomous part of your body, like your lungs that want to breathe? Like, mm-hmm. and I do. I think that all of their uh, solutions are really fascinating. But that, that to me, those are the sticking points. Yeah, like that. Well, the humanness part of our body that wants to do this, how do you shut that off? Um, they uh, to go back to the inner ear thing and uh, and uh, getting a little motion sick and weightlessness. Yeah. They proposed either draining ear fluid. Or filling them up. So there you go. Um, they said uh, electric uh, slash drug cardiovascular control. They uh, recommended drugs to prevent uh, muscle atrophy, which sounds perfectly reasonable. Right. Except in their um, in in their argument, it would probably uh, just happen on its own through something implanted in you. Uh, which I guess you would have to get like a refill pack. You'd be kind of like a printer. I'm thinking on your back <laughs> where you have like the cyan and the magenta and all this. And yeah. You'd suddenly you'd get like a little light would show up and it's like, oh, I'm running low on uh, anti-radiation medicine. I yeah. Better. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder if there'd be one that would run out uh, the fastest, you know, because it seems like we're always having to replace cyan. 
I don't know. It's true. Why is that? Yeah, it's a weird color. But uh, they also recommended lowering body pressure to facilitate uh, better facilitate spacewalks. Okay. Perhaps naked spacewalks. I'm thinking like, like basically they're saying we could we would we would just remove some of the necessary um, functions of a spacesuit. So that's uh, that's pretty wild. They also um, talked about engineering um, humans to have a uh, a light sensitive chemically regulated system that would uh, change their uh, reflectivity. In, in other words. You wear a bl- you know you wear a black shirt on yeah. a bright day. You end up uh, being Absorbing hotter. You absorb right. more of that heat. You wear a white shirt, reflects. So in space, you're gonna have situations where uh, the, where you need the heat or don't need the heat because it can make a difference between cooking and freezing. Is this the protective plastic sponge clothing they were talking about? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which sounded I don't know. <laughs> um, sounded like I don't know something in my attic. Right. Yeah. Uh, they also brought up uh, anti, basically anti-space madness medications. Yeah. Uh, anti-psychosis medications, because you're going to be up there for a while in this cramped space. You don't want uh, your fellow astronauts going crazy. Yeah. So. Yeah, actually, and I noticed that that drugs were a huge um, part of the solution here for a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, which makes sense at the time, but I guess uh, not knowing as much about the side effects now. Well, well, the, the thing is they keep a lot of these type medications on the spaceship. Yeah. Um, I have a blog post on this, which I'll also uh, link to uh, when I get around to doing the uh, the accompanying blog post for this. But but there are a number of different uh, medications that they keep on, on the shuttle. So it's not, not just the idea of using them, but mm-hmm. having them where they kick in automatically, where it's like you start feeling a little crazy and then... Your uh, your the system that's implanted in your side right. like checks you, you know. So you only feel crazy for a second. Uh, Gosh, I need that now. <laughs> oh, it's interesting. This uh, if I remember correctly, uh, this uh, features into Ian M. Banks' culture series, where you have the humans have been augmented over time, so everybody has like all these systems that are either subconsciously or consciously control, so they can they can feel less psychotic or or you know or crank up their. Uh, their sort of caffeine level without actually, um, you know, having something to drink. Uh, it just actually made me uh, think about this book that I just read, Super Sad True Love Story, I believe is the title. Oh, and yeah. they, they talk about um, everybody has something called an apparat, which is they wear around their neck. Mm-hmm. And it basically will tell you every bit of data about yourself, will communicate it to another person so you could feasibly see what my cholesterol level is uh-huh. and, you know, whether or not I need to adjust that or if I even have, like, little nano robots going through my blood, like, cleaning things up, huh. um, as well as my credit score. <laughs> it's good stuff, but it just reminded me of that. Um, they also uh, talked about pro- using uh, pharmaceuticals to, um, to, uh, have, uh, to kick in some prolonged sleep if you get injured. Like their whole deal is like you're on your uh, return trip from Mars and you, uh, I don't know, you step a toe really badly or more likely you're injured on a spacewalk, uh, et cetera. You might need to just be able to put that person under for the ride home. It might may be a condition that can't be or an injury that can't be treated uh, reasonably on the ship. That was another hallmark. Yeah. Putting yeah. people under. And um, so, yeah, those are some of the key arguments that they made. Um from there, they went on to do a number of other cyborg uh, studies where each one uh, dealt with another level. Like uh, Cyborg 2 uh, dealt with the manipulation of human emotions through mental exercises. Um, and and this, this one involved like a lot of hypnosis, like uh, like the idea of using uh, using hypnosis to and uh, and I, I could see like like meditation being a big thing, too. Yeah. They mentioned yoga, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. In the paper. Yoga in space. Can you do what well, you, you uh, have done more yoga than me? Could you do yoga without uh, gravity? Yeah, I assume you could do some of the poses, yeah. right? Um, I well, mean, never having done it. Yeah. It, 
<laughs> in a uh, gravity-free environment. I'm not quite sure, but yeah. Well, like, I mean, I don't know. It seems like the different balancing poses would be kind of pointless and like down dog. I don't know. I think Does you'd... down dog even count if there's no gravity? No, it doesn't. You're right. I mean, I think you'd have to have your compression suit on hmm. and perhaps you'd have to do like partner yoga with one person oh. uh, holding you down. This would be interesting if, if anybody out there has any thoughts on what a microgravity yoga technique would consist of. Right. I'll have to ask my yoga teacher. <laughs> um, so there's yeah, that level. <laughs> yeah, I, oh, maybe I will. I, uh, no, I will do it. Okay. Um, maybe. All right. So then uh, Cyborg 3 was genetic alterations to enhance uh, the human emotional range. Uh, Cyborg 4, deeper genetic changes. And then uh, Cyborg 5, ultimately, they were talking about the separation of mind from body, um, in, which, uh, you know, it's, it's the idea is like perhaps instead of sending uh, humans to this hostile environment, you fall back on the, the human creation that is best suited for space travel, the machine. Right. Like if we could just simply put our consciousness in it or somehow experience what the machine is experiencing, uh, you know, remotely. We could have some sort of implant that tied into the yeah. robots or. Yeah. Like it more or less an extension of what we're already doing. We, right. We, we just more data. Yeah. We talked a big game, uh, you know, about sending humans to Mars, but ultimately we can send robots there and, uh, we can, you know, move our hands on a, on a keyboard and move things on Mars. We can, we can look through a screen and see what's happening on Mars. Uh, and as that technology improves, it, I mean, it's it's basically like we're there, and uh, without having to worry about how you're going to feed this person, how are you going to keep them alive, how are you going to, you know, tackle the, uh, the the huge obstacles of engineering a person that can survive this environment. That makes sense to me. I mean, to to do the sort of uh, surveillance that you need, right? To to have nanorobots or just robots mm-hmm. go out and accumulate all that data. The thing that I think about is what what's missing there is um, like the overview effect. Uh-huh. Right, the the reporting back of the 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 human part of it. Yeah. So yes, the the we've talked about this before in a podcast about the overview effect, that sense of euphoria you get, and this deeper, better understanding of the planet that you live in. Yeah, like it, it, the Grand Canyon example is is great. Like I've never been to the Grand Canyon, but I've only seen photos of it. It looks really cool in the photos, but everyone will tell you that's been there that the photos just don't cut it, that you don't really, like, understand the Grand Canyon until you see it. Right. Which which I totally buy because, I mean, that's that's how seeing anything, you know, amazing works. It's like the the, the photo, the, the video, you can really capture a moment or a string of moments, but it's, it's not the same as being there. Yeah, mm. yeah. But then, you know, I don't know. I think about that, yes, robots makes so much more sense, but, you know, I've seems like I've been bringing this up a lot, but like the exoskeletons we talked about, the, mil- the military is using. You know, is there a way to combine that technology as well as the uh, carbon nanotube muscles mm-hmm. that they're trying to create to, to glom that onto the human to, to again, make them more of this um, this cyborg in reality yeah. as opposed to the, the, the future that we keep pointing to? Yeah. So one of the big questions that comes to mind when we talk about all these different uh, variations on the cyborg is is that if we change humans to live in space or live in another world, at what point are they no longer human? You know, like what, you know, you, yeah. you get to where you're adding a lot of hardware, you're genetically altering somebody and then you're sending them out. And is, is that a human being anymore? Is it something else? Is it a subspecies? I don't know. Paul Davies of SETI. Mm-hmm. Um, has actually said that biological intelligence is only a transitory phenomenon, a fleeting phase in the evolution of the universe. Mm-hmm. And so his feeling is that this applies to humans. And, and if there are indeed an uh, extraterrestri- extraterrestrial life out there, that it's uh, it's got to be some sort of machine hybrid. 
Hmm. So and, and this is an idea that's come up before is aliens is it's these more evolved uh, replications or iterations of ourselves that are the sort of machine cyborg being. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it falls back in line with what we were talking about earlier. Like it comes to like the, like the, the like say cyborg five was talking about, um, uh, like basically machines with human, uh, intellects, you know, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it becomes more of a, I mean, just, again, just look at what we've sent out. We've sent machines. Machines have been the, the, the first to land on, uh, on, 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 on Mars, on, on the moon. The first going to be the first to leave the solar system. So, so is the definition then if the brain is intact, then we're still human? But, well, I think we would kind of like that to be the case. But again, we're not just our brains. It's like we're, you know, we're, we're a much more complicated system than that. That's right. To bring up the gut. Yeah. So anyway, it's an interesting question. At what point, at what point do, do have, at what point would we not be human anymore? At what point are we already not human? Um, this was, there's a 1997 stat that, uh, and this is 97, <laughs> which, uh, which argued that, uh, that 10% of the human population was already a cyborg. Just counting like everything from, uh, you know, pacemakers, uh, to prosthetics, to dentures, that there was just a huge, huge population, uh, segment of the population that was already not fully human. Right. And, and certainly, I mean, uh, if you start counting clothing, like none of us are, except for those, those few nudists out there, they're keeping it real for the, for the uh, original humans. We salute you. Yeah. So there you have it. Um, but we're not do- quite done with the uh, the brain and the gut yet because we have a little listener mail. Speaking of how important it is that our gut tell us what to do and yeah. not what to do. Uh, this is uh, from reader Ryan who writes in about uh, our recent episode uh, about the gut and the mind. And they said, uh, quote, your episode on stomach on the stomach's influence on the mind struck my interest in regard to eating disorders also. As a late teen, I had a peculiar and sudden onset of a few life-altering issues like IBS, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, manic depression, uh, more, a, more manic than depressive, frankly, which can be very destructive, he adds, um, and eventually a very long bout with anorexia, which initiated as a coping mechanism with the IBS. The IBS almost completely subsided by my early 20s, but the anorexia persisted, and it really felt like I didn't have control over my own body. Uh, I often compare it to how a heavy substance, uh, substance addiction must feel. I dedicate a lot of insight into eating disorders because they are so misunderstood as being uh, fueled by vanity, which just isn't the case, not always anyway. With these new insights on how much the stomach affects the mind, I'm excited to see what this will mean for the underlying uh, and treatment of eating disorders on the whole. I mean, I'm sorry, for the understanding and treatment. Uh, and again, that was from uh, our reader, Ryan. Which I think is really interesting because that is what, uh, neurogastroenterologists are pointing to. Are they, mm-hmm. they are saying, like, is the gut the, the problem here? Is the, the gut the one that is mentally unstable and sending all these signals up to the brain and confusing matters? Right. Um, so you gotta, you gotta look out for that one. It's gonna be big news here. <laughs> And uh, on a lighter note, uh, in response to the same uh, uh, episode, uh, Kevin writes in and says, Just uh, reassuring your podcast by saying that I probably listen to my gut more than I listen to my brain, because every time I listen to my brain, it leads me in the wrong direction. But when I listen to my stomach, I generally have a better time. Here, here. Yeah. Uh, you know, what I think is interesting is we started out this podcast talking about Flattis. Yeah. We've just closed the circle with the gut. <laughs> it it's kind of it all comes. There's no avoiding it. As much as we, you know, we we would like to, uh, we haven't reached that point where we have engineered the the humans that no longer uh, um, emit flatus or uh, poop. So that's right. No, yeah. 
scatological free humans. Yeah. So, hey, uh, if you have anything to add to that, uh, and certainly if you're that one, one or, or, or very few, uh, one of the very few individuals out there who is flat as free, uh, do let us know. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, where we are uh, below the mind on both of those. We won't shun you, we promise. No, we won't, we won't shun you. You can also send us an email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours. And all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 2024 Santa Fe, available early 2024.